scripture I'm reading from this morning is found in 1 Timothy 6, verses 5 through 11. We are on a 50-day adventure as a congregation. I need some room to walk here. We ran out of books last week, but we got them. They shipped them down. Um, If you will remember, um, last week we talked about going on an adventure together to examine the concepts of the culture that we are learning all too well in the church. During the Middle Ages, the somebody came up with a list of seven deadly sins. And they were deadly not because they existed, but because they had so seeped from the culture into the movement of Christianity that you could not tell who was a secular godless person and who was a Christian. You couldn't tell them apart from their behavior. I think that in these days that the church is learning very well the concepts of the world. Sometimes we tack religious language language onto them in order to make them seem more righteous. But this, the same tired old concepts. And so what we're doing for the next 50 days as a church is going through seven subjects. And we are going to examine our own lives and say, Lord, have those crept in here? And if they have, how can I repent? How can I come under your guidance, in your strength, in your way? And how can I not be like the world, but how can I be salt and light to the world? Now, if you did not get a little booklet last week to go through the daily adventure, they are back on the table. Please feel free to pick one up after the service. If you got a couple of bucks, toss it in a basket. If you don't, don't worry about it. But this is something we're going to do every day, and and every week we sign a declaration of freedom from that particular cultural pressure or teaching. And there are many other things that we will do as a as a church. Let me just go over through, go over this scripture real quickly with you to teach you just a couple of technicalities that might help you understand what we're talking about. <clears throat> there are many things, I said this wrongly in the first service, I hope I can correct myself in the second. There are many things in, that the culture teach us to satisfy us, to make us feel happy, or to be happy. But there are also things that the culture teaches us to dissatisfy us. This generally is a passage about false teaching. And part of false teaching is to be of, in verse 5, constant friction. Now, the the Greek word for that is paradiatribe, and and it means to walk alongside. Para means to come alongside someone. The, the Greek diatribe comes from the word um, dia means through and tribe means to rub. And so therefore we have someone in this culture coming alongside of us, rubbing us through. I mean being such an irritant to us that it makes us dissatisfied. Now I'll let you know who that is in just a minute. Now, after a person is dissatisfied, they have kind of a litany of what is 
what is okay to be satisfied with and what is not okay to be satisfied with. And it's okay to have a desire, but it's not okay to have a desire. Watch this scripture as it goes. We suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Now, in some of the older uh, um, um, manuscripts, uh, the, uh, the Codex Bede, for example, has a sentence after, and you will have it in King James Version, that says, avoid these people. And the Greek is in the, the present imperative. It means that you will have to continually avoid these people because they're always going to be alongside of you. You don't just do it once. You don't make up your mind. But there will be continually messages coming through to you. And you will have to continually be alert to them. That's exactly what this 50-day adventure is all about. It's to sensitize us continually to the messages we're getting from the culture. And so therefore, there's always going to be somebody who comes alongside, rubbing you the wrong way, hyping you up into dissatisfaction. And one of the things that it will teach you is that godliness is a means of gain. Well, the next sentence in there is, well, actually, godliness is a means of gain when it is accompanied by contentment. Only then is it really means of gain. And then you read further with me. And it says, it gives, it gives a little bit of explanation. We brought nothing into the world. We can't take anything out of it. You know, that, uh, they say that a lot of times at funerals. If we have food and covering, the Greek word there can mean either clothing or housing or whatever, but it can also mean both. Food and covering, uh, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich, and the, and the Greek word there means set their mind on, you know, um, there, there, there comes a place in Scripture where the Scripture says Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, toward his own death. And it says, and, and he just made it his, his irrevocable goal to go to Jerusalem and do what he had to do. Well, this is that same type of work, same type of uh, word. Those who desire, those who set as their mind, I will get rich. And you know what? Those who set their mind irrevocably toward getting rich usually do that. If you set your mind as a young person in here today that when I grow up, I will have a Porsche. Okay? Not a front Porsche. A Porsche. A car. <laughs> I see a lot of the adults going, Porsche. It's a car. It's a really neat car. If you set your mind, I will have that. Then, you know what? You can get it. You can get it. If that's what you set your mind toward, that's what you can have. Okay? If you, if that's the way you do that. But the problem is, it says you fall into temptations and snares and many foolish and harmful desires. Now, the, the word desire here is also interesting. In Greek, it's, uh, epithumi, epithumi, I think. And it means, essentially, the kind of longing for not only, especially for not only what you don't have, but for, but for what you can't have. It's the kind of longing that, that presents itself to you immediately when you're denied something. And you want it more because you're denied it. Okay? So when you begin to live a life of desire, the desires begin to um, take on a sort of hide-and-go-seek quality. And when you're denied something, you want it all the more. Um, okay. For the love of money. Now, let me read. This is one of the most familiar. You have pe- people who can't quote scripture will always quote this scripture. And they always quote it wrong. 
For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. People will go, yes, sir, money is the root of all evil. says so in the Bible. No, it doesn't say that either. Look at what it says. It says, for the love of money. See, the love comes from money is just a thing, just a thing, just a thing. The desire, the inner, the inner attachment, the hunger for money is a root. It's in scripture, it can be translated a root, and it'd be more accurate as to what it's talking about. When you say, tell me the, tell me the trouble with all of the world, you can't bring it down to a simple, well, the love of money is our trouble with all the world. It's not the root of all evil, it is a root, one of the many roots, of all sorts of evil. It can lead into all kinds of evil. Okay? That love can lead into all kinds of evil. So watch out how you, how you quote that scripture. And don't be too fast and don't be too simplistic with it. But it certainly is true as it stands. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And have pierced themselves with many a pang. That word is also translated sorrow or grief. They have injured themselves. In their hearts. And they have caused themselves grief. Then it says, it doesn't say don't desire. It says don't desire this. And then it tells you what to desire. It says, but flee from these things in order, you man of God, that you can pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and perseverance and gentleness and so on and so forth. Okay? It's almost like <clears throat> the, the, the scriptures that would say, you know, hunger and thirst after righteousness. And then skip over to Hebrews 12, laying aside every weight that so easily besets us and causes us to sin. Um, and then to run the race before you so that you don't, and skipping back to Matthew, get entangled with the cares of the world. See how that does that? See, there's a, there's, there's a part of us that says desire is okay. You know, in your body, you have white blood cells. And it's good to have white blood cells. Because white blood cells fight disease. But the unchecked growth of those white blood cells, those same white blood cells that fight disease, is a disease called what? Cancer, leukemia, isn't it? So it's a matter of proportion. It's not the desire that is evil. It is how much desire you have and after what you desire. Because one kind of desire is fed naturally by this world. When we were growing up, how many of you, I'll, I'll do that, I hate to have people raise their hands because it's like, you know, preachers all the time, congregations say, and then they got to say it. You know, it's like, it's like the herd instinct. So I, I hate to do this. But just, and you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you are more wealthy right now, have more money, are better off financially, have more of an income, let me put it that way, than you were when you were growing up or your parents were when you were growing up? You have it better right now. Raise your hands. Okay, most of you. Some of you are going like this. Well... Let me see. You're counting up how much you are in debt. Okay. How many of you, don't need to raise your hands, feel wealthier 
feel more financially secure right now than you felt when you were growing up? Is it just because you didn't have the responsibility when you were growing up? Do you realize how poor you are, you were when you were growing up? I mean, I grew up in a family until my mom married my stepfather and we, we weren't even rich then. But until my mom were, married my stepfather, <clears throat> we were excruciatingly poor. But we, we didn't know it. I mean, we didn't know it. I had one pair of pants and I thought, I got a pair of pants. You know, these are my jeans. These are my pants. These is what I wear at school. It never crossed my mind to have more than one pair of pants. I mean, other kids had more than one pair of pants, but I didn't say, well, they got two. Um, it, most of us only had one pair of pants. And the, and the, and even the embarrassing things that we had to go through when we were growing up. My, I had an older, most guys were lucky enough to have an older brother that they could inherit their clothes. I had an older sister. <laughs> when I was in fourth grade and I needed a new winter coat, my mom did not have the money to buy me a new winter coat. So I went to school. Now, pink was not in style for boys. <laughs> I went to school in my, that was my winter coat. I can remember it like crazy. It was gray and had a pink hood. Yeah. Boy, I had to fight my way through that year. But you know what? You know, it was embarrassing, but it was not like, oh, we're so poor. I can't believe we're so poor. I had a friend, my best friend went to school, had to wear his mother's blue jeans that zipped on the side. You know, you think a pink coat is bad. Try going into a boy's restroom with blue jeans that zip, zip on the side. So when I looked, I looked at Arm and said, man, I, I got it better than him. You know, I can take my coat off. But you know, I often wonder what the difference is because we were poor. We just didn't know we were poor. And now we are so well off. I mean, so well off. And we don't feel well off. Why not? Well, one reason, of course, is because our parents were reared by our grandparents who went through the Depression. And even though we were poor, we were not Depression poor. I mean, I, do you remember hearing stories of the Depression when you were growing up? We heard them all the time. You know, there was a time, you know, and then we go roll our eyes. Here's another Depression story. There was a time when our family had fried apples every night for supper because that's all we could afford. And we'd go sneak, you know, and we'd fry them up in the, you know, but we survived, you know, it's like da da da. It's like the survivor attitude. Well, that was part of the reason because you thought, well, it's not the Depression. I mean, I'm, it, we're better off than that. But you know what another part of it is? We are systematically trained to be dissatisfied. Do you know the basis of commercial TV, when you get right down to its very essence, is to make you dissatisfied? Commercial TV isn't on television to entertain you. It isn't on television to educate you. It is there to deliver you it is not delivered to you. It delivers you to an advertiser who has paid many millions of dollars to someone to dissatisfy you enough that you will believe that you need the product 
that is advertised on that TV show. That's the whole basis of commercial TV. After years of watching commercial TV, we all have been systematically trained to be dissatisfied with our lot in life. We all have been trained to believe that in order to be happy, we have to have some sort of product or we have to be somehow better off than we are. And we have bought that lock, stock, and barrel. And not only that, but we have legitimized it in the church. We have taken that same message and we have put it out to people that says, the message that says, no matter how close you are to God, it's not close enough. No matter how much you feel God's love, it's not enough. No matter how good you are, it's not enough. You are not adequate until you've had the experience I've had. (laughs) You are not good enough until you have what this church has to offer you. I, I tell you what, I'm trying, I'm writing an article right now. One of the things, one of my cravings is for time to write and I'm just not getting that anymore, but there was a, an article of mine that got picked up in a magazine in Argentina. And they said, the publisher sent me a copy. It's funny to read it, one of my own articles in a language I can't understand. And go, Josh, you taking Spanish? Read this to me. <clears throat> but he wrote it, he, he wrote an article. He said, write us another article. It's in leadership. He said, we want you, want you to write us another article. Boy, I got all enthused. I want to write an article on church abuse. You've heard of drug abuse? I think, I think there's church abuse. I think the church builds a dependency for people. And that they cannot be satisfied with themselves. They cannot be satisfied with a personal relationship with the Lord unless it's sanctioned through the church. It builds a weakness. Why? So it can build itself up. So some pastor with some ego problem can say, well, of course, you need my teaching. Is what you need. I know more than you do. We've got a system here, guys. We've got a system. The church has adopted instigating a dissatisfaction, not a holy thirst after God, but a holy thirst, an unholy thirst after the answers that an institution can provide. And you and I both know institutions can provide answers. It's a person, only a personal relationship can buy answers, can, can bring answers. No matter how high we get on whatever we have, it's love that we need. And you don't need an institution for that. I mean, the institution is valuable in bringing us all together to love each other. But in the end, the institution, you don't get love from an institution. You get love from people. You get love from God. I watched one of the saddest things on, on television the other night. There was a show about crack cocaine, about cocaine on. I don't know whether any of you saw it or not, but they had this one spot with this crack cocaine addict. She was 35 years old. Looked like she was 80. I mean, it was horrible to see what this drug had done to this woman. And she knew that she was repulsive looking. I mean, she, she said, if you smoke crack, you will look like me. 
I don't care if you think you will or not, you will. She was, she was down to skin and bone. She was unkempt. She was just repulsive looking. And I felt so bad for her. And they filmed her getting high on crack. She was, she had it. She was smoking it. She was high. Now, by the world standards, her craving had been met. So she should be satisfied, shouldn't she? Right after she got high, she kept looking into the camera. And without being prompted, she said, you know, I just wish somebody would love me. She felt so ugly, so unlovable, but that was still her need. Getting high was not her need. Getting high only came to a place where she could see the real need she had. We're filled as a culture with trying to get our needs met, with trying to have more, be more, do more. But you know what? As soon as we get what we've been praying for, Unless we can step back and say, thanks God, that's all I wanted. The only thing it does is let us see the real need that we have. Many think that religion is for gain. And many have tried to turn theology into a pattern for success. And many have tried to turn God into the great cosmic vending machine. You put faith in, you get this out. And it says in Scripture that false teachers will teach that the reason to believe, the reason to have faith is in order to get, in order to gain. I watched television um, this last Monday morning because Becca was getting ready. I was waiting on her. We were going to take off someplace. She got a phone call, so I just switched on the television. I had not seen television preachers in the morning. Now, I watch them at night because part of my craving, part of what I like, is to have people listen to me. And that is not very healthy because you can do, you can, that's not not the right reason to preach. But I've got to own that that is part of why I'm up here, part of my gratification. So part of my penance <laughs> for being like that, part of, the, part of the corrective measure I have for myself is to put myself in learning situations that I can learn from other people, even people I don't like. You know, I just flat don't like them. But I sit in front of them and I say, Lord, I want you to teach me through this man. I, I, you know, I may not believe half of what I hear, but I'm going to learn something from the Lord through him. Because that is, I just need that. I need to be taught. I need never to picture myself as a teacher, always to picture myself as a learner. So I was sitting there, and I'm listening to these guys on TV. I was absolutely abhorred. There's this guy on TV, and he's saying, you stay tuned. And I will tell you how to demand from God. I always do that. Demand from God a withdrawal from your account in heaven. 
I'm going, whoa. Yeah, you want me to do that? Get me fired up here. <laughs> to this person, the theology was to store up treasures in heaven so that you could go to God and demand that he return what you had done for him while you were on this earth. That was his theology. And for a half an hour, I sat there and I said, Lord, I'm going to learn something from this. And boy, I did. For a half an hour, I sat there and I listened to this guy again and again and again preach a gospel that made me totally dissatisfied with the life I had, thinking I needed something else to be really on fire for God, really blessed by God, and that if I would sow this particular faith, this particular money, I mean it all, it came down to money. If I would give this, that would be my account toward God and what God would be obligated to do is take that and multiply it and give it back to me while I'm in this world. Now you tell me the difference between someone who is greedy in a, in a cultural way and somebody who's greedy in a religious way. I'll tell you, there is no difference. If I stand here and I say to you, that I am, I want money. I want money, period. I like money. I'd like to roll in money. I like the things money can buy. I want to get rich. I want to ignore everybody else. I want to be totally self-centered. I want money. Or I stand over here and I say, well, I just want God's blessings on my life. And I just, I just want God to shower from heaven. Just open up the windows and shower down his blessings on my life. I want big houses and I want big cars. And I want just so that I can be a witness for God and say, tell everybody what he's done for me. You tell me the difference between us two. One was a lot more honest and a lot more direct. And one just consecrated their own greed by using religious language. That's the only difference. There is an infection of desire in our lives. And we can't get clean from it just by using religious language. We can't consecrate it. We can't call it righteous. Proverbs says in many places about calling the wicked righteous. What makes us do that? Because we want them to be righteous. We want them to be right. That same morning... Phil Donahue had Tammy Faye Baker on. Oh, what a combination. <laughs> we live in America. I'll tell you what, boy, we can. And again, my heart goes out to her and goes out to Jim because I just don't, you know, I just don't know how much is due to ignorance and how much is due to, I don't know. I don't know. And I realize she's not a theologian. I realize that. But you know what? Phil Donahue said to her, I heard Jim Baker wants ten houses. And Tammy said to him, So what's wrong with wanting ten houses? Now think about that. 
Think of all the homeless people there are in this nation. Think of all the poor people there are in this nation. What is wrong with wanting ten houses? Come on! But do you see where religion has gotten? We are so blind to our own cravings that we cannot see anything wrong with wanting them as long as we see them as blessings from the Lord. We don't think in terms of sharing. We don't think in terms of contentment. If, let's get away from Jim Baker or Oral Roberts or whoever, but if you have a house, a covering, if you have food, the question is, what else do you need to be satisfied? Is there anything else that you need to be satisfied? Christians, I need to rebuke us this morning. I need to say to us, we crave and are greedy for the wrong things in life. The popularity... The security that comes from our bank account instead of from our father. Other relationships, relationships other than we have, we want them so much we can hardly be, be content and satisfied and praise God for what he has given us. There was a first century bishop who was a picture of contentment. And one time somebody looked at him and said, how Did you ever get to be so content? I love his answer. Listen to this. He said, simply from directing my eyes in the right direction. (laughs) And he said, well, (laughs) what do you mean? And he said, well, every day I get up and I look at the sky and I picture heaven. And I say, my chief goal in life is to live in heaven and let heaven live in me. That's where I want to go. That's my goal. Then I direct my eyes downward. And I say to myself, eventually, all I'll need of this earth is 18 square feet of ground. Three by six by six. It's all I'm going to need. It's all I'm going to need of this world. Then I direct my eyes around me and I see how many people need more than I need and how much of what I have I don't really need. Now this is a first century bishop and they did not live luxurious lives. As a matter of fact, I know many of you come from the Catholic Church. As I said, a lot of my family comes from the Catholic Church and I've got a bone to pick with the Catholic Church. Catholic Church does not teach Scripture and does not build strong personal relationships with the Lord. But I tell you one thing the Catholic Church does right and the Protestant Church does wrong. And that is they at least have a goal of dreaming that the spiritual leaders 
would live in poverty, would not need to have the things of this world so that they could concentrate on the things of the next. How many of us dream someday of poverty? Dream of not desiring, not craving, not needing other than what we've been given. Not even needing half of what we have been given. Thoreau said, he is rich in the same proportion that he can afford to do without things. Let me say that again. He is rich in the same proportion that he can afford to do without things. And he was talking emotionally. I wasn't talking materially. Somebody once said, being poor is a problem. But being rich isn't the answer. Think about that for a minute. There's a matter of the heart. There's a matter of checking our desires. It doesn't matter if you have $15 billion if you still want other things, you are poor. And it doesn't matter if you are hungry periodically. And it doesn't matter if you have to stretch, and all of us have done this, and eat cereal for supper sometimes because you haven't got the money. If you are glad for what God has given you in your family, in your work, in your friendships, in the challenges of life, even if you don't have all those things, but you have His companionship, and you have His love, and you don't need anything else, you are the richest person in the whole world. Because no one needs to add anything to you before you're happy, before you have a sense of God's peace. That's where God wants us. Wants us to love Him. And for that to be enough. When is enough enough? And when do we stop craving and start carving? When do we stop wanting and start giving because we don't need it anymore? There was a time when I needed it, but I don't need it anymore. And if you need it, I want you to have it until the time comes when you don't need it anymore. When do we start that? There was a festival of music in Verdi, Italy. And they asked the renowned maestro, Arturo Toscanini, to conduct several um, pieces of the symphony, several, uh, uh, what do you call those, uh, symphonettes? Well, no, what do you call them? <laughs> Stuff, music. Nobody, boy, low class here. Nobody knows what this is. What do you call those pieces of music? What? Concertos, movements, whatever. Okay, we're getting all kinds of stuff. I don't know. I don't even know. I can't even recognize it. This is not a multiple choice. This is a fill in the blank. I can't recognize it. <laughs> Anyhow, they ask him. So he did. At the same time, they asked another maestro who was not Tuscanini if they could get him to 
do some of that conducting. There was just too much for Tuscanini to do. He said he would. For one lire more than they were given Tuscanini. See the desire? After the festival, he got his check. You know how much it was for? One lire. One lire. See, when you have enough, the time comes to give. Not out of guilt. Not because you're going to get something back. But because you have enough. Because God has blessed you with himself. Because God has blessed you with the relationships and with the challenges you have. And that's enough. There is a continuing battle with desire in our life. There is always a time when we will need to guard, I will need to guard myself against different wants that I have. Because desire comes just with a different face. Once you ask God to remove one kind of desire from your life, another seems to pop up, at least it does in my life. I used to, when I started out in ministry, and I'm going to ask you in just a minute, what kind of desire you've given to God that he's taken away and then what kind has popped up in its place? You know, just so that we can get a flavor of continue, continuing the battle of craving for more and more. But let me just give you a confessional here. When I started out in ministry, you know what I wanted? Big church. Golly, if I was going to be a preacher, I might as well, <laughs> might as well be a, have a big church while I was at it. Ego. Oh, golly, I cannot tell you the ego problems in the ministry. And I had 90% of them. I still got 50%. I'm on my way down now. It's what I wanted. And God did just that. And then I realized it's not what I wanted. I was shallow. I really didn't care about people. Or I had been distracted by the institution to the place where I wasn't caring about people the way I wanted to. So I said, God, I don't want this anymore. Take this craving away from me. And he did. He honored that prayer. And I literally now do not care whether Northland is six people or 6,000. Doesn't make any difference to me. It's all up to God. I have absolutely no, one way or the other, it's God's business, not mine. Don't care. However, in that place, I'm running around like a chicken with my head cut off. I said, God, I don't have enough time. I want to write. I want to write. I just, I got these things in my heart. I want to write. Oh, I can't. I got to go over and do this. And I got to go over and do that. So give me more time. See the craving and how it comes back? And how day by day I'm cutting off the blessings that God is sending to show me what he is doing with my life because I want something else. Is there anybody else that finds that true in their life. I'm just going to sit down for a minute and let you come to either one of these microphones. Just share a couple of words. Now remember, this is not a sermon. This was a sermon. This is, this is, just, a, this is just a personal testimony. Anybody who got what they thought they wanted and then that wasn't what they wanted and now they kind of have another craving popped up and they're still 
you know, God's kind of showing them what contentment is. Anybody else? I'm just going to sit down here and wait. Okay, or just talk. Okay, that's all right. Um, I think one of the things that um, as as myself, a lot of times I think, well, I want men to honor me. And that, you know, like I can get rid of like things. They don't bother me so much, you know, but God has given us more than, I sometimes almost feel guilty because we have more than we need. But I want somebody to say, oh, you know, look at you, or oh, and I know that's ego, and and I don't, I know that's not what God wants. I'm a public school teacher, and many years ago, I was wondering where I was headed, maybe administration become a principal, and then I I was filled with the desire to talk more about the Lord. And I thought, well, a public school, that's not the place to do it. I need to find a Christian school where I could teach and uh, maybe become a, a pastor of some church. So I started uh, looking in that direction. And after uh, teaching in the same school for six years now, last year I finally realized I've been right where God wanted me to all this time. I finally started to look around and see the need at that particular school. And all those years I've been uh, there teaching in a secular situation, kind of hiding God, not letting him out, afraid that I might lose my job. I've gotten bolder in the last year and a half now, and I talk about God to my students, to other teachers. I didn't realize how many Christian teachers I work with until I started talking. And it's amazing how many there are. We're getting more and more going, and uh, I was blind to it all these years. Finally, six years later, stuff is being done. And it's a good feeling. And it's such a good feeling if someone said, you might lose your job. I could care less. It doesn't matter to me anymore. I wish I had felt that way six years ago. Would you turn in the, in the scriptures to Romans thirteen fourteen, and we'll we'll end with this. It says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. What Debbie was just talking about was the difference between the lusts of the flesh. That is, having something to make us someone rather than being someone who has something. Makes all the difference in the world. Careers can be wonderful ministries, but if we are dependent upon them to be more than an avenue where we walk out our faith and our love of God, they hold us prisoner. 
Everything we want, every provision that we believe that we need, in addition to the love of God and what He has freely given us to live, is our bondage. Would you pray with me right now a prayer of confession and a prayer of simplification so that we can take this to the Lord? Lord, help us to have things in your perspective, not in ours. Help us to be joyful at what you've given us, but never again to fall into the temptation of seeing you as a means of our gain. Help us to die to self and to live in you. Help us to know that the things that we believe would make us prisoner, and that is to depend only on you, is really our greatest freedom.